Welcome to the Inspirational Australians podcast, where we chat to people making a difference in their communities and in the lives of others. And here is your host for today, Jeff Griffin. Welcome to the Inspirational Australians podcast, stories of inspiring achievements and community contribution. Every week, we will celebrate an award program category winner or finalist. We hope you'll be inspired and encouraged to know that Australia is in good hands. Together with our corporate partners and not-for-profit partners, Awards Australia showcase ordinary people from right across Australia doing extraordinary things. If you enjoy hearing the stories of our inspirational Australians, please subscribe, rate us and review us. We'd really appreciate it. In 2013, she completed a diploma in social services and whilst on a lengthy placement, realised she could do more good advocating for foster children from outside the formal child protection system than she could from within. In 2014, Heather Baird founded A Better Life for Foster Kids. It's such an honour to have you on the podcast, Heather. Thank you so much for joining us and congratulations and thank you for all you do. Thank you. We're really very thankful that we um, have you on the podcast today. Congratulations uh, for winning your award uh, in last year. Of course, it was all online. It was really tough for us and I'm sure it was tough for you to have to do it online, but at least we got to have our awards. Heather, as I understand it, you've got first-hand experience yourself growing up in an orphanage orphanage and foster care. That must have been really tough for you. I don't know whether it was so tough because I hadn't known anything else. It wasn't like I'd been removed at an old age. I was still a baby. Two and a half back then was a baby. Um, So I think my sister and my brother, who were older siblings, I think they suffered more than what I actually did because I didn't know any different, but they did. The orphanages, you know, they weren't fantastic. Horrible things happened there and there's no denying it. Um, The way you were brought up, you were brought up, you had your food, you had your bed, you had everything else you needed, Um, but there was absolutely no love there. There was no physical hugging or, you know, the only physical stuff that happened in these places wouldn't have been happening. So, yeah, it was tough, but I think it was tougher after I left the homes, after I left the protection of these places, I think that was the toughest time of my life. We might ask you about that shortly, but what were some of the obvious, I mean, you've just talked about it, but what are some of the obvious and maybe the less obvious struggles foster kids are faced with, both in care and, of course, as you come out of care, as you're alluding, when you're old enough to fend for yourself? What are some of the things... I mean, maybe without going to too much detail, but that kids are faced with that we wouldn't even appreciate. You mentioned the lack of love, and uh, I guess that must be really tough as well. I I think the difference between myself being put in an orphanage and kiddies that stay with their biological parents that are, you know, drug users, alcohol users, that sort of thing, I find more as I go into this system or whatever you want to call it, the kids nowadays, they're brought up being blamed. They're being blamed. You know, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be in this situation. You're nothing. You're no good, that sort of thing. 
at least in the orphanages, you didn't get that. But I think the kids nowadays, they're, it's already instilled in them, you know, like um, something as simple as using a toothbrush. We were taught that. Some of these kids have never seen a toothbrush, let alone know how to use a toothbrush. Um, I remember one family that I dealt with when I was with DHHS and there was a little boy of three and all he wanted was deodorant because he knew he smelled and that wasn't what he wanted. So that was his one thing, give me deodorant so I don't stink anymore. So I think, um, and the other thing being too is these kids have bounced around in the system for so long. By the time they're old enough to leave the system, They've learnt nothing. They've learnt no life skills and they don't know anything. All they've done is survive. It's really hard to imagine, you know, we think maybe you watch a movie and it's all very lovey-dovey and foster kids are welcomed into the home and treated like royalty. But I guess what you're suggesting, there are many cases that's not, and that must be terribly, terribly difficult. Uh, you also mentioned Heather, that uh, once you get out of foster care, it can be particularly tough to fend for yourself. Can you explain a bit more some of the situations you might mean by that? Certainly. Um, one thing, Jeff, kids that are in foster care nowadays, it's the foster carers do open their homes, do open their hearts to these kiddies. It's fighting the department that destroys 90% of placements. Simple things like if you get a child that's really, really traumatised, the family may need weekend respite, you know, once a month, just the family time and that sort of thing. It's impossible. It's ridiculous, you know. So it's it's more like one foster parent said to me they would have 100 children if they didn't have to fight the department every single time. And that's exactly how it explains it, you know. They've, they've got to fight for counselling. They've got to fight for absolutely everything anything that costs money they've got to buy for and realistically the agencies aren't much better they get money to help settle these kiddies into places and that never gets to the carers so you know that's what makes it the carers spend all their time keeping a child safe and fighting for that child but never get enough time to actually say okay that's in place now we can do this that's why we're losing so many carers we're losing them by the droves Kids, uh, one thing I will come back to is when I was basically kicked out of the homes, I was too old. I didn't know what a supermarket was. I'd never seen a supermarket. I didn't know that you had to pay bills, you, that you went shopping, that you had to go to work, none of those things. I knew nothing. So basically from the age of 18 through to around the age of 30-odd, I stumbled through life. I had children, stumbled, had children, you know. And then one day I sort of thought, well, yeah, you know, after you've been stumbling, you do realise that, okay, you can, can take control of your life, you can do this. I was lucky in the convent that I was in. We had um, everything from cooking classes to allocution to absolutely everything. Um, so that gave me a good solid background in housekeeping and that sort of thing, but it didn't tell me what the real world was like. It yeah. didn't tell me that if you didn't bring a wage in, you didn't have electricity on and that sort of thing, you know. So, yeah, it's... And these kids nowadays, their carers spend more time keeping them safe than anything else, you know. So, yeah, it's a, it's a hard transition. Um, one um, statistic from quite a few years ago now, and it's one I'll have to renew, is that one in four foster kids by the time they're 21 that don't stay with their foster parents 
uh, either drug abusers, alcohol abusers in the justice system in jail or dead wow. before they're 21. That's one in four. That's a shocking stat. Mm-hmm. And I think there are a couple of things that come to mind there for me. One is that for parents, it's so important to educate your children in life skills and not just focus on education or educational institutions, but really uh, help your kids understand life and life skills and the day-to-day tasks that are required of them once they then leave home. But also it makes me feel um, that we really need to be conscious of individual situations. If they're not conforming or they're not exactly the same or they uh, need help in certain areas, it may be because of circumstances beyond their control, things that they haven't had the opportunity to understand or learn. And I think we need to be more understanding uh, and empathetic for people uh, that they may come from situations like you're explaining where they haven't had those opportunities. And I think we're very quick to judge, which is such a a sad situation and sad indictment uh, on our fast-paced life where we just only think about the things that got to be done by us or those around us in a, that period of time. So I think I hear a lot of people like yourself who are there just working to make a difference, that people don't always have the same opportunities as others or as we do. And it's certainly very eye-opening, Heather, and I applaud what you're doing and I I feel for everybody that's been through situations like yourself and I hope that we can all be part of helping people who have been in foster care to to be nurtured into life so that they're able, uh, like yourself, to have transitioned more easily than some clearly the one in four that aren't. Now, going back 10 years or so, what initially led you to undertake the Diploma in Social Services? Oh, in 2009, I was diagnosed with a chronic lung condition, which meant I couldn't work full-time. Um, 2009 was a whopper of a year. My house burned down, um, got diagnosed, so it was, you know, and I was made redundant. It was a beauty, so it was sort of pretty much okay. What are you going to do with yourself, blah, blah, blah. And once I sort of started getting over the initial shock of the diagnosis and that sort of thing, and I hadn't been doing anything for quite a few months and um, anybody who knows me knows that I'm just not sit around and do nothing. It just doesn't work for me. So then I decided I always knew I wanted to do something with child protection and it was purely child protection. It was nothing else. So I just started the diploma and I think I needed the diploma to heal myself um, I then started talking about what happened to me growing up in these homes and that sort of thing. And um, I'll say here that I don't think, I think the children of today, they suffer a much more horrendous abuse than what I ever did. Because everything, as far as abuse goes, everything's moved on to a more acceptable level. The morals are scaled down to virtually nothing. You know, there's nothing that's, they do whatever they want to these children, and that's the sad part about it. The morals of the world has lowered so much. You know, child pornography is accepted much more widely. Child sexual abuse, the whole, the whole lot. You know, you you've only got to look at the 
perpetrators, the fathers and mothers or whichever, um, that have actually been the perpetrators, they've still got the right to see their children. How can that be? You know, it's not right. Um, the one who physically beat up his children, they can, they've still got the right to have contact, supervised contact with them. How can that be right? It, it isn't right. I feel your pain and um, I, I think the average person wouldn't understand these uh, such issues in no. today's society. You, it's hard to imagine that these things are possible and people are still getting away with these types of things. Uh, and abuse is something, you know, for a young person or domestic violence for a female are reprehensible and beyond belief that people can and would do something like this. And I think we probably all need to be aware and on the lookout for these types of situations and report uh, to the authorities anything that they, we see is inappropriate because it is disgusting and it must scar children for the rest of their lives. What a disadvantage they grow up with in their life. Oh, definitely. It is something that you never, ever forget. I mean, I'm 66 this year and I still have those moments. Um, it's as simple as that. I have been lucky in as much as when I was about nine years old, I said, right, that's it, I'm going to survive all this, I don't care what anybody does to me. There's a lot of people that haven't got that, you know, um, and they do become the victims. They really do. They stay the victims and it's because they just can't take that one step. On Everybody tells me I'm stubborn, I'm determined and all the rest of it. Well, I am, but that's what got me where I am, you know. So, um, But some of these children, they've been bounced around so often that they just can't, you know. They fall through the cracks at 12 and 13 years old. I dealt with a young 15-year-old girl not long ago um, hadn't been uh, checked by child protection for some seven, eight months because she was flying under the radar and next thing you know, the child's pregnant and everybody wants to know what happened to her. You know, of course what happened to her. Nobody looked after this child. That's what happened to this child, you know. You look at, at one stage of the game there where I did my placement, each worker had over 50 different families. Now, how can one worker in a 40-day week cover 50 different families? And most of these families got three or four kids at least. You know, it, it's oh. not possible. Yeah. Well, my question was going to be next, uh, why did you decide to start a better life for foster kids oh. <laughs> mid-placement? But I sort of can guess why. But tell us how that came about. You're doing this diploma in social services and suddenly you realise um, something's not right here and there's nothing I can probably do about it in this situation. So how did that come about to start a better life for the foster kids? Okay, I dealt with, this is a young three-year-old I was talking about before, I dealt with a family of three, two boys and a girl, who were removed and I was trying to get some clothes for them, just basic clothes, toiletries, shoes, could not get anywhere. I rang the local op shops and they, oh, yes, you can come. But when I got there, I couldn't just outfit them completely. I was only entitled to a couple of items, that type of thing. And to be truthful, they were, they were dearer than what the, the Kmart was, you know. And then I wanted to get the girl a school uniform because I didn't want her going to school. One thing I remember back in the homes was everybody knew we were homies when we went to an outside school because of our clothing. Yeah. We didn't have a uniform like all the other kids or anything like that. And the one particular place was a very 
um, elaborate area of Melbourne. It was in Middle Brighton, so you can imagine Middle Brighton's never changed over all these years. It's still the, the place to be. And we attended a local private school there, but we attended in our orphanage, you know, our clothing from the home. So that really waited on me, really, all, always has all my life. So I wanted to get this girl a uniform. I could get access $100 to buy her a birthday present, but I could not access $100 to outfit her. Sure. I ended up going the primary school she was attending helped me out, and we got a couple of vouchers from Target and that sort of thing, and that's how we did it. But my question was, the child doesn't need $100 for a birthday present. The child would have been happy with a $25 doll or something, you know. Why couldn't I buy her that uniform? And the answer was because that money was allotted to me for birthday presents. Right. There's no flexibility. No. So basically after that happened and plus I realised early on I'd never met, I'd never cope in the um, system. I'd tell somebody where something that they wouldn't like and, you know, I'm, most probably would have lasted about five minutes. And um, so I thought, well, okay, I'm letting that lie down. How else can I do it? My mother was a very well-known person in sale. And until we lost her, there was no way no one I could start this because people didn't know our story. Even my cousins didn't know our story. Um, I had a cousin that said to me, not not that long ago, we thought you were naughty kids. That's why you were placed in the homes. Nobody knew our story. And just out of a little bit of respect for her, I knew that mum had cancer. And once mum passed away, she passed away in December. And by June, we had a better life, lost kids up and running. So tell me, uh, or tell us, tell our listeners a bit more about A Better Life for Foster Kids, what uh, what you aim to achieve, what you do achieve. We we started off in an old canteen at the Metball Courts in Sale, accepting donations. We had brown paper bags to put our clothing in, and that's what we distributed it in. Then some locals got a wind of that's where we were and started breaking in and destroying it. We had no electricity, no power, um, no water, no toilet, no nothing, you know. So we started off there and I think the first year we did about 100 of these bags and um, for DHHS and that sort of thing. And then after the last time it got broken into and they, we had to basically bulldoze everything in there because we there was some sort of substance that had been spilt and we couldn't take the chance and there was needles and that sort of thing. So we couldn't take the chance of anything happening. So we got rid of everything and we were offered um, rooms at the Sale Memorial Hall. Um, and... Then our first year's budget was $1,609 or something, and that was from sausage sizzles and cake stalls that my mother-in-law and I did and a few friends. Um, So that was our first year. And then we managed to get a um, grant for volunteer grant and that, and things just built up from there. We started off with purely supplying crisis cases, which basically... If I said to you, your child's going to camp for a week, pack what they'll need, that's what our crisis cases have in them. So that gets your carers over that initial, you know, okay, I've got a kid coming, I've got nothing, blah, blah, blah. Whereas with the crisis case, they can. I had a carer put a post up the other day to say two little boys arrived at 2.30 a.m. in the morning. I didn't have to worry about a thing because they had their crisis cases there. So within an hour, they were bathed, into bed, in their pyjamas, sound asleep. So... You know, it's all of our crisis cases carry a hand-knitted teddy bear and a hand-knitted blanket. Now, the reason I use these things, it's to show these children that somebody care. It's not just something that they've gone out and bought. It's something that someone has taken the time to make for them. 
And studies show that if you can stop that trauma, even only for a minute, then the trauma can be lessened by over 50%. You can imagine the police removing a little child and they wrap them up in a nice cuddly blanket and give them a teddy. Well, that's enough to put the child to smile and hug them and feel better. So it's got to give them a better start and it takes the pressure off the carers. The other thing we do is we supply furniture to um, youth transitioning out of home care or if we get a, we had one young or 22-year-old brother take on his two siblings and we furnished his house and stocked his pantry and everything like that. So if it means that we're going to get a kid out of the system, keep a kid out of the system, we will help in whatever way we can. So far this year we've um, set up three single mums young single mums I think the oldest one's just turned 18 with absolutely everything they need for the baby you know that's from cot to high chair to cram to clothing to nappies the whole kick of the boodle so that she doesn't have to worry about anything for at least three months and I advocate for carers and for kiddies the stories that you hear in this system are just horrendous what you're doing is extraordinary will make a real difference in people's lives and helping them to set up. Do you play a, have an advocacy role with government at all? Do you talk with them or um, uh, provide information or, or you know, uh, seek their support to make changes? I, yeah, no, I do. We've submitted a paper to Parliament in regards to the, um, the Aboriginal children of Australia when... Um, the government are asking for when they started all this Aboriginal children need to be with Aboriginal carers and that sort of thing. We submitted a paper and they were asking for 85% of kinship carers. Now, worldwide, it only sustained 47%. So the Australian government is asking the most remote communities, the smallest community, to maintain 85%. Now... How can that happen without risking safety to the children? It's just impossible. I submitted that to Parliament and um, after many, many months of asking and pleading, I finally got a meeting with DHHS who come back and they said, oh, well, our figures show we're only asking 68%. But even 68%, you know, the world can only manage 47 So... You know, they're actually discriminating against these children now. They're taking them out of safe, nurturing homes and putting them into places that aren't safe. Remember going to a conference where Paul Mundine spoke and he said exactly the same thing. Um, and he's a foster carer himself. But, you know, they removed his children because there was kin. You know, it's... It's not right. It never happened in any other culture. You don't see them removing Muslim children to go with Muslim carers or anything else. So these children are actually being discriminated against. I've advocated oh, eight or nine times for these Aboriginal kiddies and a couple of stories have just been horrific. One particular young girl, I was with her for five, six years and sadly that she's just been dumped by the department and that's it, you know. This child will never have a chance in her life again and it's thanks to the department and their silly rules. Um, and that's all they are, really. Somebody has said, oh, this is good, this is what we need to do, 
but nobody's actually gone down to the grassroots and said, well, hang on a second, is that really the best for that child? What really amazes me, Jeff, is I remember a couple of years ago there was a dog that was tortured. Yes, that that is just non-acceptable. It's the most disgusting thing out. But then we had a little 19-month-old that was murdered and the upcry was more for that dog than what it was for that baby. How can society mm. accept that? Yeah. You know, Definitely. we've just had just had this damning um, report saying 65 kitties known to child protection died in 12 months. Mm. Now, I shared that story two, three weeks ago. I called Luke Dunellen out, who is the Minister of Child Protection at the moment. I've heard nothing from him. Mm. Uh, the new shadow Minister for Child Protection, Matt Babar, he's got this portfolio when this story broke and he has said the same thing as me, it's not acceptable. We can't just let this slide under the carpet because all these deaths in child protection do just that, they slide under the carpet. Yeah. It's easy to hide it than what it is to say, hang on a second, this is not acceptable. So, Heather, you do such a fantastic job. It really does make such a difference for so many. Uh, I know it's just the tip of the iceberg, though. How many volunteers do you have working with you now over these past few years? And, and how many crisis uh, cases do you think you've given out and other? Um, I have five wonderful ladies. We call them the Thursday girls. Given that everything has to be... Uh, the quality control is so high, we don't have any more than that because it's just not things slip through, you know. I always say to the girls, nothing, if you say that'll do, no, it's got to be this is spot on. So yeah. these children have already been grown up with crappy stuff. They don't need it coming from us. So we have these five wonderful ladies and um, they actually keep going while I'm away and everything, keep the whole charity up and going, that sort of thing. So of oh, crisis cases, that could go anything from five a week up to 20 a week. It just depends on how the rollout is. I would say roughly at a rough guess over the years we've been going, would have had to, we normally average about 1,500 a year. So yeah. but this, this financial year has already beat that by a good three 400 and it's increasing every single day. So I don't think a week goes by that I don't get a call from a carer that needs me to advocate on their behalf. I take it to whoever I can. Lucky I'm not paid by any government department or anybody else, so nobody can tell me what I can and I can't say. Um, so, yeah, I ruffle a few feathers. It doesn't matter. <laughs> well, I guess uh, that's important to make people aware of uh, the need people who are not necessarily on the cold face. And it sounds like so many displaced kids that are receiving help from yourself and your team. It's absolutely fantastic. Now, I understand that you've got a sister charity planned as well. Can you tell us about that? Oh, this is really exciting. Um, I find, and I have done over the last six and a half years, that had carers just had a little bit of legal advice, everything could have been stopped in its tracks. Um, so because out of all the quality of cares there are against carers, hardly any are ever substantiated. So they have to go through all that turmoil at risk of losing everything 
and then the department or the agency says, oh, no, it's nothing, it doesn't matter, you know. So we've started um, Foster Kids and Carers United Limited, which is um, a charity that is hopefully going to provide pro bono legal advice and representation when needed. Uh, it's really exciting because this is Australia-wide, so it's it's a big one. Mm. Um, it's to the way it'll work is uh, the carers can go on our web page, type in their questions, that sort of thing, and then lawyers who volunteer some time can come and say, yes, that one suits me, I can do that. I've got a couple of hours to answer a few questions, give advice, um, but I, I can't represent them, I'm too busy. Um, so it's really just a meeting platform and it will... And the kids can do exactly the same thing too. You know, you've got dealing with a 12-year-old boy who doesn't recognise his um, Aboriginal heritage at this stage of the game. It's something he's grown up with all the time without ever having anything to do with. Um, my thoughts are, and I found the same thing with myself, once I was old enough, I started looking for my history. I started looking for my family and that sort of thing. And I think these children will too, but they've got to be allowed to nurture that and let it grow naturally not have it forced on them just let them grow into that body naturally and I think that'll make it so much better so this little kid's gone from really anxious to suicidal talk that sort of thing all because he feels he's been forced into something he doesn't really he's not ready for so you know to have this sister charity here where the carers and the kids can just go and say hey where am I what do I do here I think will solve a lot of the problems and keep a lot more placements going. The difficulty is that everybody's different, aren't they? I'm sure that's what you've experienced. Every young person uh, feels differently about different situations and it, everybody's situation can vary. Mm. It's so difficult. So, you know, I really appreciate that you've come from the situation yourself, a situation not dissimilar and you can have the empathy and the understanding uh, and uh, to be in the right place and, and give advice and really appreciate what people are going through. Now, just to head in a different direction for a minute, last year you won, as I mentioned, the GoTafe Community Group Award in the Victorian Regional Achievement and Community Awards for your extraordinary contributions, which we're starting to understand uh, a little bit about. What was your initial reaction to being nominated? Um, I was actually astounded. I didn't really think that um, I didn't think we were in that league, to be quite truthful. Um, we are a small charity. We're in small Gippsland town. Um, and I've had many people say, well, you know, you are only in Gippsland sort of thing if you're in Melbourne. Um, but we reach all over Victoria and all over Australia with advocacy and that sort of sort of thing. So um, it was it was a real honour to think that other people thought what I was doing was worth an award, basically. So yes, it was acknowledging what we were doing. Fantastic. Well, not only were you nominated, of course, you went on to become a finalist and also win the award. It must have been such an incredible thrill. And as you say, an acknowledgement and validation of the work you're doing. Yeah, and it was not just for me, but it was for our all my volunteers too, because they're the backbone. Um, there's weeks that I get tied up with different, 
you know, kids and that sort of thing, and they just step up to the plate every single time, but also our local community. The local community in around sale have just taken us under their wing from the CWA ladies through to just everyday people. It's the schools. um, It's really amazing. People are starting to become aware of this is happening in their own town. It is happening in their own street. And in all the time I've been doing this, I've only ever had one person tell me that this doesn't happen in her life. Yeah. And I thought, well, you know, one out of all the people that I've spoken to and that sort of thing, yeah, I can handle that. Yeah, that's brilliant. Normally you would have attended a sold-out gala presentation dinner, but last year, of course, everything was online uh, and the online hosting was done by Prime 7's Harrison Lance, who was terrific from the Prime 7 studios. It was still a thrill, I'm sure. would have been lovely to have met you in person uh, to shake your hand and thank you for all that you you do. Nomination for this year's Community Awards will open late May, so very, very soon. And if any of our listeners would like to find out how to nominate someone or more about sponsorship partnership opportunities, please drop me an email at jeff at awards Australia or go to the awardsaustralia.com website to get more information because these awards do acknowledge people like Heather and they're really important. They're a great opportunity for community members to say, you know what, I really acknowledge what you're doing as being important and you should be recognised. So people get on board and nominate someone for an award. Now, getting back to the work you do, how do you fund your work? You talked about the odd little grant and so on. Do you get much in the way of uh, government or uh, community support? You talked about your local community being very helpful. How much funding do you get to provide all of the uh, services you do? We we are very, very lucky. We've got a wonderful grants writer. Um, we steer clear of... Um, government grants for operating costs because that gives me, like, if you can get funding from DHHS, but then you come under their certain rules and regulations and all that sort of stuff. So basically we steer clear of that type of funding. Um, A lot of private donations um, and private grants. Um, We... um, We seem to have a lot of just you know, your little grant, your little donations and that sort of come in, but, gee, it builds up, you know. It's amazing um, the amount of things. We've had um, recently our premises were flooded and um, I had to fly home quickly and then fly back up and get it all sorted. But we had Law Yang B come on to support us. They brought in workers. They brought in, you know, skipped in that we needed. They donated money. You know, we couldn't have done it without them. It's as simple as that. There is no way known. So we had these wonderful men there for two days solid getting rid of everything. I can tell you with between me and the five girls, there's no way known we could have managed to do this. Um, we had a local carer and my son stepped up. You know, everybody just did it. But for a big company like Loyang to say, hang on, we see you, we know what's happened to you, we want to help you, that's community. You know, I had... Um, people say I'm coming down to get washing we'll wash and clean whatever you need and that sort of thing so the Sunday I got back Saturday and the Sunday we had passage full of garbage bags full of wet washing 
and they just kept coming and coming and coming and I had to say, stop, they got no more, you know. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, we do, we're always on the lookout for um, <clears throat> grants and donations that don't involve the government because that way I can't be shut down quite yeah. simply, you know. I can keep doing what I do. I can keep advocating. I can keep saying this is wrong. We need to stop this. We need to change our policies. With that, you know, we do a lot with donated goods like all our handmade teddies and blankets. And, you know, we have um, sewing charity up in Queensland donate to us. You know, I mean, it's just amazing. It really is. So the actual costs of running a better life for foster kids other than your rent utilities and that type of thing isn't that high. Um, But you still need money to do what we do, yes. You do a great job. What's something that we might not know about you, Heather, on a, a totally different track? Uh, something you might not know about me. Well, everybody knows I love coming to Northern Territory and barrow fishing. Um, I would say something that I never, ever dreamed that I was actually good enough to do what I do. Um, it was not something that was instilled in me. So. For me to get where I am now has been my achievement. It has been something that I've done and it's made everything that happened to me prior. I wouldn't be where I am now if that hadn't happened. But at least now I can sit back. I married a wonderful man, have a really happy life, and in the meantime I get to help other kids. And if I can stop one kid from going through what I went through, it'll be all worth it. Fantastic. There must be times, though, when it all gets a little bit too much or you're feeling a little bit low. What do you do to help reset, bounce back and recharge, you know, as inspiration for our uh, our listeners? I find that's when I call on. We've got a very small, close-knit group of friends and it's when I'm like that, it's family, grandkids, my kids, my friends, it's, okay, come on, it's time we need to get together. We need to, you know, freshen everything up and that sort of thing. And I think realistically that is the one thing that if I'm, especially when I deal with some of these kiddies and I think, look, the worst thing I can ever do is look at these kids and think, oh, my God, you're, you're that one's age, you know. And that is something I've learned that I can't do that anymore because I was associating what was happening to these to my grandchildren and, you you know, it's just a no-no, you just don't do it. But I find that when I really need to reset, it's something with grandchildren, my children and my friends. And, you know, pretty much that's it. I've got a couple of good friends that enjoy a nice bottle of wine with me and, yeah, that's that's basically how I reset and that's the best way I know how other than coming up here and fishing. Yeah, well, of course, our um, listeners wouldn't know that you're currently in the NT um, having a holiday. We appreciate you taking the time out of your holiday to talk with us as well. So what's next for Heather Baird? Well, we've just embarked on having a uh, 15 depots around Victoria so that we reach more children, which we will have add to another team of um, volunteers to help make that happen because we can't. We want to set up a counselling, some sort of counselling system for these children, and this has been going on for three, four years now, so it's a real hurdle. But 
it's where, you know, it may not be that the children need counselling or that it may be that the carer needs counselling to help manage the child and that sort of thing. So we've had a survey done that will show us what it is the carers need and what it is the children need. So once we've got all that information sorted and that, we will then start doing our um, setting up some form of counselling. Some of these kiddies will go six to eight months without even thinking about a counsellor. And I, to my way of thinking, within 48 hours of coming into out-of-home care, these children need to have one-on-one, might not need a psychiatrist, might not need a, it just needs a voice, somebody they can say, this is my story and I know you're going to be here for the next six, eight, ten, whatever months and you're going to be the only person I have to tell this story to because I know myself, I've perfected running away from home, the homes. That was my, you know, I could do it, no worries. And I just got sick to death of telling people my story. I got sick to death of telling them what happened to me, why I did it, that sort of thing. Because every time you turned around, it was somebody different. How many times does a kid tell their story? They don't, you know. They end up telling whoever they're talking to what they want to know. Well, it's pretty inspirational. It sounds like you've got a lot of additional things planned. You're growing fast, which is absolutely fantastic. You, the judges were very impressed. We have so many amazing nominations, hundreds, and for yours to be selected from a massive group down to that short list and then to the final three and to win the award is a, uh, is a real honour, as you said. Heather, where can our listeners connect with you online or get involved with what you're doing? We have our Facebook page, which has over 6,000 likes and volunteer followers now, which is fantastic. That is A Better Life for Foster Kids. We also have our web page, which is uh, abetterlifefosterkids.org.au. But anybody can ring me um, on 0412-154-424 anytime. We, I don't keep office hours. It's basically one week I might work. 10 hours, 20 hours, the next week I might be 40, 50. Yeah, I'm I'm very accessible and anybody who'd like to come on board and help in some way, yeah, more than welcome. And I believe people will be able to get hold of you or get your number again from your website as well. Yes. yes. If, uh, if they weren't able to take that down. Heather, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. You are an inspiration. You're doing so much for the community for foster kids and your advocacy work is extraordinary. Thank you so much for sharing a little bit of your story with us today too. I hope you've uh, enjoyed the podcast with me as much as I have with you. I have. Thanks, Jeff, and thanks so much for the opportunity. Um, Can I just mention quickly that May the 1st we're launching our major fund run, fundraiser. It's quite exciting. It's uh, called Extend Your Table. So keep an eye out for that. It'll be all over our media pages soon. And that's something that absolutely everybody can be involved in from kindergartens to high schools to aged care to absolutely everything. And the aged care is really close to our heart because a lot of our knitters come from are in aged care um, and it makes them feel like they're doing something, they're contributing. You know, it serves a double purpose that way. But thank you so much for the honour and it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Heather. So people can find out about your fundraiser on the 1st of May on your website? Yes, on our website and on our Facebook page. So get onto that website, check out the fundraiser, check out what Heather and her team are doing 
that important work and be aware of the fact that there are so many kids out there that are in foster care that uh, could could use our support in whatever way that may be, even if it's just looking out for them and, and trying to offer support through the system or letting Heather know and uh, being conscious also that a young person trying to integrate into life may have come from troubled situations or difficulties like foster care or others. So be kind uh, to everybody. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Heather's story as much as I have sharing it with her and talking to her. And remember, people, please be kind and together we can make a difference. Until next week, have a great one. I hope you enjoyed today's interview as much as I have. We would love you to subscribe to our podcast so that you won't miss an episode. Join us each week as we talk with ordinary Australians achieving extraordinary things. Did you know that Awards Australia is a family-owned business that proudly makes a difference in the lives of those that make a difference for others? And we thank our corporate and not-for-profit partners for making our award programs possible. Do you know someone that's making a difference? Or maybe your business might like to sponsor an award. Contact us through our Instagram page, inspirational.australians, or head to our website, awardsaustralia.com. It would be great if you could share this episode with your network because who doesn't like a good news story? And please rate and review us. We would really love to hear your thoughts. Until next week, stay safe. And remember, together we make a difference. Thanks for joining us today on the Inspirational Australians podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening and have been inspired by ordinary Australians achieving extraordinary things. So it's goodbye for another week. Remember, together we make a difference.